everyone, and welcome to Goddard in the World podcast, the last episode of the third season. I am here with my co-host, Sam Reveline. Hey, Sam, how are you doing? Hey, Amanda, I'm doing great. How are you? Awesome. It's super rainy outside, like all day today, and so we're kind of just stuck inside. But uh, yesterday, Curtis, my husband, and I and Rafa... Took some time, went to the Museum of the City of New York, uh, which is like, around the corner from our house. <laughs> so that's nice. <laughs> yeah, but I remember you saying that at some point, mm-hmm. that you were really close, but you hadn't been before. Is that right? Maybe. Yeah. I've been a couple times now. And it's it's cool. It's a, like it, it's nice because it's like a free museum for uh, people who live nearby. And the exhibit that we went to was about like food distribution in New York City. Like how does food oh, get to New York City? And it made me <laughs> I was journaling about it this morning. Cause it's basically it I mean, the answer is mostly through Hunts Point um in the Bronx, <laughs> which is this huge like warehouse. But um it talks about how there's like no farmland in New York City and, you know, mm. um grocery stock like four or five days worth of food. Um and wow. so basically, like we saw in the pandemic, you know, like if if we're cut off in or out, we're like pretty fucked. Food wise. And I was like, and this is the basis of I think like Red Dawn and like some other, you know, like other post-apocalyptic stories, like with that um, Manhattan gets cut off. Yeah, you know, like where it's like, what do we do? in a city that's like saturated with like humans fighting for resources. Right. Oh my God. <laughs> that's, that's what red Dawn's about. I've never seen. Red Actually, Dawn. I'm not sure, but I, I, okay. I feel like it might be, but like, I'm not sure. I thought it was like kids fighting commies. I don't know. Okay. Scratch red Dawn. But like, <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think there's like another story. Like, I feel like there's a story that Patrick Swayze, was it Patrick Swayze? No shit. I think it's Kurt Russell. Sorry. <laughs> I'm thinking of like hot 80s kind of guys. You're thinking (laughs) of Escape from New York when it's like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so now I feel like I'm going to butcher this reference. Go for it. Because I've never seen it, so... Oh, and I've only seen it once. (laughs) I think that it's about... People are screaming right now. We're like... um, (laughs) We're like, oh my god, you guys are such idiots. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But isn't it like all of New York becomes a prison? Like, it's so like overrun and infested with crime that Kurt Russell has to break into the prison to save the president's daughter or something? I think that's correct. All right? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know why they're overloaded with crime. Like, I don't know if it's like some sort of post-apocalypse thing. I think or, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So it's, I mean, it's a rich terroir, right? <laughs> <laughs> because it's talking about food. And so it's like, the, yeah, the museum exhibit. It's like, it, it's like a rich setting to, you know, mm-hmm. it's like not as interesting to set post-apocalyptic stories in like, self-sustaining environments right like (laughs) like like a farm or whatever that's out you know like where you can see the zombies from like miles away it's like yeah that's not that's no fun we like to see how things uh fall apart right exactly um yeah especially with the humans you know like 
and I was talking about this with a friend recently, that the best part of zombie stories is watching the day of the, the day mm. the outbreak hits. Mm-hmm. And like, you can kind of see there are glimpses of zombies or like stuff happening at the fringes, but people aren't really paying attention to it yet. You yeah. know, that's, that's always the really good stuff. So listeners yeah. call in and tell us what you like <laughs> about post-apocalyptic zombie call, narratives. Call into this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but actually, that's a pretty good segue into um, some of the news that we we do have. Um, not to go too far on a tangent from your talking about the museum. No, but, yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you do, if you would like to call into the podcast, we are always looking for new guests. Um, as Amanda said, this is our last episode of the third season. Mm-hmm. Um, but our fourth season will be coming in hot this fall. And if you <laughs> would like to be a guest on that season, we will be open for guest submissions in the the whole months of May and June. So by mm-hmm. the time this episode drops, the submission form will already be up and running and you can type your information in there. It's a very simple form. It's just like, what's your name? What's your connection to Goddard? Yeah. Um, like what publications do you have coming out or whatever? Yeah. Um, so we'll put the link to that in the show notes. What else will be in the show notes, Amanda? Um, yeah. So if you are interested in helping out with the podcast in any way, we are also accepting submissions for that. And I will put a link to a separate form in the show notes. And please fill it out. Let us know what your what your interest is in and what you can bring to the table, like what, what you're excited to to share your talents with us. <laughs> like yeah, how you're if, excited to share. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you have experience um, editing audio or uh, writing up show notes or like social media. Yeah. Boosting, you know, anything like that and anything that can help get some audio programming off yeah. the ground. Um, mm-hmm. If you have anything, any area of expertise related to that um, and want to share, please let us know. So, yes. Awesome. Yeah. Also, I figure in the show notes, we should have some kind of link to like tickets or something for an yeah. event that Amanda has coming up. Yeah. Um, tell us all about Raised PNI, Amanda. Yeah. What is, so, what? Raised PNI is a group slash community slash writing slash theater piece um, that <laughs> I am part of. And we started back in November, I think, and uh, we have evolved a theater piece that is focused around uh, Philippine mothers. And it came to me as like right when I was becoming a mother, as as we have talked about before. And the show is taking place um, Mother's Day weekend, May 12 and 13. So the Friday and Saturday, there's a Friday night show and Saturday afternoon and Saturday evening. And so those three shows are also going to include artist talkback. So me and the rest of the cast uh, will oh, be cool. there and uh, be able to chat about our stories and the process and everything. 
and, and how many stories like when you say the whole cast how many yeah there's um there's eight of us uh so it's cool. it's not a terribly long show but it's not gonna be <laughs> like 10 really minutes either like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's it should be i don't know 60 to 90 uh minutes Perfect. and so yeah so but we're also gonna have like a vendor art market and there's gonna be like a welcome vip reception i'll put the link to tickets the eventbrite link in the show notes and you can read all of the information there and if you are local to new york i would love you to come awesome and what what exactly does penai mean like what is mm-hmm. that um, yeah, Pinay is just a word for Filipino. Um, so if okay. you're That's Filipino identifying, yeah, yeah. So it's like raised Filipina or yeah. Filipino, like Pinay. In the past, they've done shows that were just about like identifying as Filipina. It's like I was like raised as a Filipina. <laughs> like this is my experience or these are my stories. And so this iteration is the first one that's focused on mothers. Uh, so it's like we were both raised Filip- I was both like raised Filipina and am raising a Filipino, <laughs> half Filipino. Um, awesome. Baby. I feel like that you sort of whispered, like, don't let him know, but he's, he's only half. half. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's half. Yeah. So it's, it's very exciting and it's, it's fun. And um, the stories are great. The like very like personal and well told. So I'm excited cool. to, to share it with the world. Yeah, that's exciting. And I love knowing that there will be an author talk back afterwards, because I Mm -hmm. think that always really solidifies any kind of like performance or theater Mm -hmm. thing that I see when you, because you're seeing people perform, but then it also feels nice to have them like sit down and be like, okay, so here's the backstory to like the version of me that you just saw on stage. You know, that always feels like a nice other half to so I I think that's super cool. This sounds like a great event overall. Thank um, you. I'm excited yeah. to hear about it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited for it. And I'm excited to share it with everybody who is able to come and port. Um, it's also a benefit for an organization in the Philippines called Roots of Health, which is a 501c3 that supports uh, women and girls with reproductive health. Um, so yeah, yeah. So, so it's all, it's all a lovely, like circle incubator type thing. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a page for roots, roots for health you said, or roots of health? Yeah. There's, there's a link there. Yeah. So I'll, I'll put that link in the bio as well. Um, because they would welcome donations if, even if you're not available to, to come. So yeah. Well, I'm sure donations will go towards like making future events like this happen and, you know, go to um, other programs and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I think mostly the proceeds go to that, the, the Roost Health organization so that they can continue because it's low income women and girls. And so, like, I think it's so they can continue okay. their mission of helping them achieve reproductive choice and health. Well, that's fucking great. That yeah. sounds awesome. Um, <laughs> Thank that's you. all super great. I'm trying to think of a segue. We're talking about moms well, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, raising kids and mm-hmm. some of the stressors that might come into that, um, which is a, a perfect segue into our guest today, 
Yeah. Um, Minna Dubin. Yeah, Minna, I'm so excited to share this conversation with everyone. I was kind of a babbling idiot because I, I, <laughs> edited this episode so it's like I can hear myself (laughs) um Mina and I attended Goddard together and we were both in the transformative language arts program and uh she and I just see eye to eye on a lot of things but uh she has a book you'll see the pre-order link in the show notes she has a book coming out called mom rage and so we had this great conversation about mothering and societal expectations and the rage that can be simmering underneath based on based on those expectations um so yeah yeah, what do you think what did you think sam we had like this like mom (laughs) seminar and i know and i was like oh great great stuff Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah me not a mom uh in the middle of this Um, i I felt bad (laughs) no it was it was fun it was interesting to hear her talk about some of these larger societal uh structures that i think Mm -hmm. we don't really pay attention to like Mm -hmm. not to spoil too much of what she says but Mm -hmm. you know for example the school day ends at 2 30 3 o'clock the adult work day ends at five so Mm -hmm. who's in charge of the kids for that couple of hours in between there in the afternoon um you know and it's so been the accepted thing for men to be like oh well you take care of it honey (laughs) now all of a sudden you are stuck being a mom with like a part-time job Mm -hmm. because you can't have a full-time job and like you gotta take Mm -hmm. care of the kids and like you know because you're running around they're like there's um like a lack of respect that comes with that you know like Mm -hmm. um that sort of stereotype of the like, oh, well, you're just a mom and running around and you're crazy, you know, um, that men start to like sink into. So, you know what I mean? It was interesting to hear like her take on some of those larger structures and the stigmas that have grown out of them. And I I like to, and we sort of joke about this in the pod, in the, in the episode, um, but, you know, we're not going to, like, reinvent the wheel over mm-hmm. the course of, like, a 90-minute episode on <laughs> talking Probably about matter. Yeah. But the conversation that we go into isn't like, Minnow, what is your solution for yeah. this stuff? How do you, you solve know? the patriarchy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> we're just talking about it and talking about, like, yeah. some ideas that she has and how to create positive art from this. Yeah. So. I thought it was really cool. And you had a, a great time reconnecting with an old Goddard. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. And I mean, when we were at Goddard, neither of us were moms. And so, like, this is, like, not a conversation that Minna and I have ever had. Wow. <laughs> okay. But, but, yeah, like, it's it's pretty cool and um, that we can still connect this many years later. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, no, I mean, I think... Transformative language arts is a lot about not just seeing the issues within yourself, but like how it relates outside of yourself, like in the community, in the society. And so mm-hmm. I think she she does she does the TLA people proud <laughs> like, nice. by um, using language to address and name the the issues. And so yeah. um, it's weird to say that like, I'm proud of her. Cause I don't have like a, you know, I didn't <laughs> do 
her. <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't educate her. You're not like, her mom. I'm not her but, mom exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but I am like proud of her in that way that she's like you know just doing her doing her shit out in the world. Like I mean it's yeah. it's awesome. So yeah. So so pre-order her book. Um, it's the link's going to be in the show notes. She she recently posted that over in England or you know the. British, like Irish and British. The it's, Commonwealth. Yeah, whatever. you know, the yeah. Commonwealth. The book is going to be published as Mum Rage. <laughs> like, Incredible. And I'm like, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like, it's, it's so silly, but it's it's true. You know, like that's what yeah. that's the word. So yeah, Mum Rage. <laughs> nice. Oh my god. But gosh. it's funny because mum, mum also means to quiet, right? And mm. so like yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Percolating with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she brought up just a lot of really fascinating ideas. Like like looking at things from angles that I um especially as a guy who again is doesn't have a kid, yeah, would not have thought of things in that way. So, sure. um I feel like I got a lot out of our conversation and just re-listening to it um, Yay. this last week. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I hope everybody enjoys. Yes. Thanks, everyone, for being here and for sticking out with us for season three. And we will see you again in the fall. everyone. I am so excited today to introduce our guest, Minna Dubin, who I was actually at Goddard with. We overlapped. Uh, she graduated before me. I was there 2007 to 2010, and she graduated in 2008. So, uh, And we were both in the Transformative Language Arts program. So Woo-hoo. yeah. Woohoo. Uh, so yeah, Mina Dubin, it, she, her is a writer, mother and educator in the San Francisco Bay area. Her writing on motherhood has appeared in the New York times salon, parents, romper, the forward Hobart mother magazine and elsewhere. Minna has become a leading feminist voice on the topic of mom rage, appearing on MSNBC, Good Morning America, The Tamron Hall Show, NBC10 Boston, NPR, and her work was made fun of on Real Time with Bill Maher, <laughs> which I love. And we, we're going to have to talk about that. Yeah, we <laughs> yeah. She is the author of Mom Rage, The Everyday Crisis of Modern Motherhood, forthcoming from Seal Press in September 2023. You can follow her on Instagram at Minna Dubin. Welcome, Minna. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm I'm so excited. We've been trying to do this for like a while and I'm (laughs) thrilled to have you here. Not only because I love your published writing, like all the things that we just talked about, the mom rage, um, but I have admired your writing ever since we were at Goddard. Like, I think yours was one of the few theses that I was like, I need to read this whole thing <laughs> and <laughs> borrow it. <laughs> that would have been really impressive because I remember it was 217 pages. <laughs> but I like totally was like, I mean, if you looked at my thesis, which I'm not going to make you do, but um, if you looked at it, it would be like, hmm, the structure is kind of similar. No. But yeah, uh, 
at one of the early, the first residencies, maybe for me, um, I heard you read at our like salon or cafe, what, whatever we called it, the Friday mm-hmm. night uh, reading that we did. Um, and I have this like distinct memory of you reading of your essay Zoftig, which uh-huh. I loved. And it was about like body image and identity and family. And so it's like all stuff that I totally resonate with. Mm. Uh, I, I want to ask first, like, do you have a memory, um, an early experience um, of reading your work aloud, uh, like writing and reading your work aloud? Because like that, it, it really makes a difference to like hear hear it in your voice. You know, it's funny. Reading my work out loud is like, is super important to me. When I give people my work, I Mm -hmm. always wish that I could just read it to them instead of having them read it, which like, you know, if it's good writing, it should translate whether you're reading it or not. Um, But I am a very voicey kind of writer. Like when I read my stuff out loud, when I, when I edit my stuff, I read it out loud. Yeah. I do have an early memory. It's pretty embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) Great. The more embarrassing, the better. My my earliest, like, or the most impactful sort of memory of reading my stuff out loud was when I was in undergrad in New York. I went to Eugene Lang, which is part of the new school. Mm -hmm. And you know, spoken word was really big. Yeah. And I was friends with the spoken word artist and I was really influenced by it. And I wrote a poem about not orgasming with a partner. Okay. (laughs) And I got up at this like bar where there was an open mic and Mm -hmm. I read it and my knees were literally knocking. (laughs) And I was holding the paper and it was shaking. Like it was horrible i was not good the poem was not good it was like oh it was really one of my most embarrassing moments ever how has that changed over time clearly you've become more comfortable reading your work in front of people i mean even by the time you got to goddard like was it's funny to think that amanda has this amazing memory of you reading this essay and the possibility Mm -hmm. that you were like trembling as you were reading it i mean were you more confident by then or Maybe, but I bet when I read that, Amanda, I probably like had it in a notebook because I have mm-hmm. learned that if I hold the notebook, it doesn't, you can't see it shake. It doesn't as, shake as, as much. <laughs> like, I, I still get really nervous about reading and I like, I want a podium so that I don't have to hold it. It's mm. possible that we had like a music stand or something yeah. because I would not want to hold loose pieces of paper. Um, and I think my voice shakes a lot, but yeah. like I have this like, mm-hmm memory of yeah you might have had a notebook i don't remember specifically <laughs> i mean i would tape i would i would glue them or tape tape things into notebooks when i would mm-hmm. read so that i wouldn't have to have a paper that's smart though wow. because like in like if you're if you're like in an orchestra like i grew up playing in like violin and orchestra you would have it taped so that you didn't have to do too many like tart like page turns or whatever like yeah but like, I just, I, I mean, your writing has such a distinct voice and like you were saying, like voicey and, mm-hmm. and like, I, I have a memory of confidence um, in your writing, not obnoxious, but, like, but yeah, I mean, because it just felt like it was like really from, from you. Have you always written 
from your experience, like creative nonfiction or po- like the poetry, the not orgasming? Like you said. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I have always been writing. I've always been interested in writing about what I'm not supposed to talk about always. Mm. Um, and writing specifically about my experience. And I mean, maybe that's why it's always been scary because it's like, it's so, so very personal. And I just feel like if it's not like, if it's not like from my gut or like a gut punch, then what's the point is sort Mm. of what it feels like to me. Mm. If it's not scary, then why am I, why would I write it? Mm. Is how I I sort of feel about my work. I love that. Let me sit with that for a second. Uh, that's, that's awesome. What was something that you were not not allowed to talk about, but you wrote through anyway when you were younger? The ne- like my next reading experience, which wasn't actually reading, but it was performing. I had to. Mm-hmm. I tried to memorize it. My thesis in college was a one woman show called Boxed In, White and Jewish with a Booty. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Incredible. What was the poster for that? <laughs> I think it was a box with like identities like written on it, like packing tape. Mm. Cool. Um. <laughs> And like, I feel like everything in that was very, like, I wrote about shopping as a size 12 person Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. like never feeling like I could like find my size, which like now doesn't seem actually like appropriate anymore. Like, I feel like, I feel like sizes have changed since I wrote that, you know, in 2002 or whatever. And like loving across race lines and, and, and I, I was writing a lot about like the unsaid, like what was, ha- I was always interested in what was happening in relationships that wasn't being said. Like I was mm-hmm. very, at that point I was pretty obsessed with race and how it affected relationships and what was happening in all of my friendships and romantic relationships, like underneath the surface. So I was, I talked a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Wow. In, in, um, so you grew, you grew up in Philly, right? Uh Mm -hmm. Um, so did you have, did you have writing experience from there? Like uh, that, that also talked about what you weren't allowed to talk about? I mean, I had a, I have a writing background in my family. My dad Mm -hmm. was a lifelong, uh, newspaper reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer Mm -hmm. and still Mm -hmm. writes, he writes books now. Mm-hmm. And my mom was an English teacher and she edited uh, University of Pennsylvania's newspaper. Oh, wow. My cool. brother's the writer. He had, he wrote a screenplay once that was optioned. Now he's oh, a, like oh, marketing cool. mogul, but um, <laughs> <laughs> so I feel Amazing. like it was always in my family and mm-hmm. I don't remember doing that much writing about like things that, couldn't be said except for like in my journal mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. my college entrance essay it was like you know the common application mm-hmm. and i remember the the question was write about a societal problem and the societal problem i wrote oh. about was mixed race children being forced to choose only one race because society only sees them as one thing ah. and so they were, wow. because my best friend growing up from kindergarten through high school was mixed her mom was white and her dad was black and then at Mm -hmm. some point in high school she you know declared to me that she was black and it took me a long it took me a while to sort of process what that meant and try and understand that Mm. so was that one of the main you said that was in high school was that one of the main relationships that you feel like flavored your college thesis at all or um, what were some of the relationships that came up in that one woman no, I actually didn't write about her in college. I I wrote about my boyfriend when I was a freshman uh, in high school. 
And then I wrote about my, who is black and that is black. And then I wrote about my boyfriend when I was uh, a senior in a junior and senior in college, who's Jewish and Iranian. Yeah. I maybe, yeah, she might have, that friend might have played a role in one of them, but you know, she didn't get a whole essay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I just think it's always funny thinking about the people who sort of bubble up as ghosts in, um, in my own work. And I'm always curious about the ways that that happens for other people in their writing. Um, you know, you write a piece and then three years later you look at it and you're like, Oh my God, my dad's in this or whatever, Mm. you know? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's why I asked, cause I was curious about, you know, looking back, do you see some other things that you didn't notice at the time bubbling up into that thesis um, or your thesis at Goddard even? I mean, each, you know, you know, stuff that's old, like it just like doesn't feel like relevant anymore. Like I wrote a whole book for that Goddard thesis, basically. <laughs> like yeah. I have an unpublished book in there <laughs> of, yeah. of memoir essays. And I feel like those essays were different. Like they were more about what was happening at the time for me. So, mm-hmm. I mean, body image has been a thing throughout, I think, in my work, although not currently. Um, so that was still in the Goddard thesis. And, but then I was like, at that point, I had fallen in love with my now husband. Mm. And so there was a whole thing about like gender and love mm. because he was not or is not sort of hyper masculine in the way that the guys from Philly were. And mm. I was sort of like wrapping my mind around this other kind of masculinity that I was excited about, you know? So mm-hmm. I wrote about that. Oh my God. It's like, it's all, mm-hmm. I'm always writing about what's happening to me right now. Cause that's yeah. what I'm occupied with. Mm. Yeah. And how have you found, how have you found the processing of those issues, your current, you know, relationships and your um, current place in life? How have, how have you found writing either impacts those relationships or vice versa like i guess i guess we can kind of talk about transformative language arts in that way because it's social change and personal change like so yeah how how do you find that relationship between writing and experience i i mean i think that my writing is for me is always about personal change it's also Mm -hmm. about social change like it when I get to read it or publish it, I feel like I am talking, I'm using my story to talk about something bigger. Mm -hmm. Even if I don't realize that that's what I'm doing, it ends up being what happens. Um, I feel like all of my work is, is therapy, you know, Mm -hmm. in a way, you know, Mm -hmm. I I don't go into it as therapy, but there's a way that I'm processing everything that's happening to me through my writing. And then sometimes, you know, when I'm writing about someone else also, or, or I'm writing about myself, like my experience with my family and then I'll show it to my partner. I, I don't know. I've always been better at, at having that space to express myself in writing. Like I'm just mm-hmm. better at expressing myself in writing than I am out loud. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I feel like I can, I can like get at the nuance of what's happening for me mm-hmm. and pick it apart. And it helps me understand myself better. And then when the people I'm writing about, when they read it, it helps them sort of understand me better like it just Mm -hmm. and I I think that I tend to like I'm not mean in my writing I'm I think I tend to be generous um and self-deprecating and so it it shows like a slice of me that maybe isn't isn't as clear on the surface I think I can come off as really confident but there's like 
there's like a sadness underneath that I think I allow through in the writing. Mm-hmm. Mm. So how did Goddard come into your life then? And when it did, you're both, so this is sort of a question for both of you, I guess. Uh, you were both in the transformative arts program, which I had not heard of that program at Goddard before. And I would wager that most schools don't have a transformative arts program. <laughs> so I, my question for you, Mina, is twofold. How did Goddard come into your life? And once it was in there, what was the transformative arts program like for both of you? It came into my life. I was I was figuring out, I think I wanted to go to grad school. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a teaching artist, which did not exist as a thing. Like I had never heard of that. I didn't know that that was the name for what I wanted to be. Now I think that's like a thing, but I wanted to be the guest star that got to like go into schools and like Mm -hmm. on Tuesday they would go to English and they would have me and I would do like creative writing with them. I wanted to run these like memoir for performance workshops around identity. Like I had this very specific like thing. I want. I just wanted to be a writing workshop facilitator for teens around identity. It was right. so mm-hmm. specific. And I didn't yeah. know how to go to school for that. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, researching programs and I found this Goddard program. And I was psyched when I read that description of transformative language arts of that program. And I describe it like I know I have never forgotten the tagline of the program. And I tell it to people all the time. Mm-hmm. And it just it just felt like exactly what I wanted to do because it was like the writing that I wanted to do both for myself and with the students was about them knowing themselves and like understanding themselves better. Like it was about personal transformation and Mm -hmm. like accepting themselves. And, and because I wanted to do it as like this performance element as well, it was also about like letting teens perform for the community is transformative because we don't ever honor 15 year olds voices. Like just Mm -hmm. that act alone, even if it wasn't about identity, Mm -hmm. you know, has that transformative power just to like put a microphone for their voices. Yeah. I was excited about um, that. This program was going to let me both do my writing and theoretically get a master's to do this like made up career I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) Can you, um, can you say the tagline? Cause you, you'll probably say it better than me. (laughs) I'm probably going to mess it up too. Um, (laughs) It's using the word written, spoken or sung for personal, for personal and social transformation and change. Yeah. Something like that. That's what, yeah. Yeah, it's basically what I would think too. But it like that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, sure. Sam, <laughs> Sam came from the MFA program, so they uh-huh. weren't clear. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I I looked at the at Goddard's MFA program also. Mm-hmm. I thought I wanted, you know, I didn't know whether to do a master's or an MFA. I felt mm-hmm. mixed because I wanted to be a writer, but I also wanted to do this made up career, and I felt like I could be a writer without an MFA. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know if anyone sure. would hire me to do this mm. the workshops without mm. a master's. So mm. I felt like that's what I needed for that job. Yeah. Yeah. I likewise also wanted to be a writing facilitator. Like I wanted to create writing workshops that that I could present out in the community. And uh, at that time, they were about... 
what were they about? <laughs> I think I think when I started Goddard, they were going to be about mythology and uh, in oh, everyday oh. life. Um, that that, and then later they were about romantic love and uh, the myths that we create around that. Yeah. So the TLA or Transformative Language Arts Program was created at Goddard, actually, and so that's why by Karen Miriam Goldberg, and that's why you won't find it. <laughs> other places (laughs) um in that exact form yeah like i the the tagline and like what other people were doing uh in the tla program really resonated with me it it had this kind of umbrella of like you could be a teaching artist or um like a like drama the facilitator like and, and create theater pieces that that spoke to like uh different identities or social change and all of that so like i mean it just it it all sounded very cool to me i would was looking at poetry therapy as um oh, one of the things cool. that i was thinking about i didn't end up you can get like a certification in that but i didn't do that but yeah so it was it was a lot of those those things for me was like being able to do my own writing and then also having that like space and container to do the facilitation because we were all required to do a practicum. So in our, what, like third semester. Mm -hmm. um, And so we had, we had to like teach or, you know, do, do whatever practicum um, out in the community. So that was like really appealing to me that I would, be able to practice practice um, this this thing that I wanted to do uh, before I graduated. So yeah, that was that was that was TLA for me. Um, um, yeah, and so Minna, mm-hmm. when you I have I have a memory. I don't you you're just like in my memories um, of Goddard. Like very you're in mine too. <laughs> like, oh. I have a memory mm. of you at your graduation saying how Karen Miriam Goldberg, who who started uh, the TLA program, called you before you started Goddard. Do you uh-huh. remember that phone call? Yeah, I, it's funny that you said that because I was thinking that as you were talking. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know, the other part of it about Goddard and why I went there, I guess, was that when I was interested and I, you know, found it online, I think there was, you know, an email, like, contact us if you're interested or something. And I, so I probably sent her an email and she wrote me back like immediately and was like, want to, want to get on the phone? (laughs) And I got to like talk with the woman whose program this was. Yeah. And, she, you know, Karen is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I immediately was like into everything she had to say. And I was mm-hmm. like, I want to do this program and work with you. <laughs> yeah. And then I remember when I got there, you know, they set you up with the, what did they call them? The mentors? Like advisor. Advisor. That's the word. Yeah. And I didn't get her. Mm hmm. And I was like, this is a mistake. She's supposed to be my advisor, like, forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I ended up having Ellie Epp, who was mm-hmm. amazing. And I did this whole family history project. I think it was with her that I had no intention of doing. Like, I never went to Goddard to do that. Mm-hmm. 
And maybe I didn't do that with her. Anyway, each advisor I did like an amazing thing with that I hadn't known I was going to do. And it was mm-hmm. totally transformative and amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did get to work with Karen at the end for yeah. as my like final thesis advisor. And that was perfect. Oh, good. That's a nice like ascension to the. Yeah. No, <laughs> she's so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Likewise, so, like Karen called me as well, is a very effective recruiting tool. It <laughs> is. <laughs> That's the Goddard way. I, I mean, it, the MFA yeah. people called me, Elena, George, you. Um, yeah. Like, it's just that personal touch that mm-hmm. makes Goddard feel so special and magical. Absolutely. As long as we're talking about it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. And well, Karen. Yeah, I thought I was going to work with her immediately as well because she she has done a lot of work in mythology and poetry and all of you know, like all of the things that I f- was interested in. But I was paired first with Jim Sparrow and I'm like, "Oh, that's interesting." Um but he was he was amazing and he was exactly what I needed, like who I needed uh, in that first semester. And then I did get to work with Karen also in my second semester, but then as my thesis advisor. Uh, so, you know, I, I, Karen got to see plenty of me, but, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it was, it was awesome to, to have a, the other advisors I had were Lisa Weil and Ellie Epp. They were both excellent and formative for my writing as well. But, you know, they, they just all have like different, completely different approaches. Um, yeah. So, staring into your soul and different from different angles (laughs) (laughs) which is really weird (laughs) yeah uh so during your journey minna in at goddard you started with wanting to do like to be a teaching artist Mm -hmm. how did that work evolve uh while you were there you know i'm trying to think what i did that first semester i think it was with eliep i i don't remember what I wrote about, but I remember what she had me read. And I read a mm. bunch of Kim Chernin. Okay. She, oh, the um, Reinventing Eve. Yeah, I read Reinventing yeah. Eve and In mm. My Mother's House. Oh. And Kim Chernin blew my mind. Mm. Yeah, I can't remember what I did with her if that was the, I don't know, the family history. But I definitely did like a big family history and went back to like the pogroms. In, oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, I did this whole study of this pogrom in Bialystok in like 1906. Whoa. Like, and it was amazing. And I did, uh, you know, an oral history interview with my grandmother. Like all, and I did did this huge family tree. Like I have all of this stuff that I never would have had if I hadn't done that. And it did feel really important, especially like if I'm going to be focusing on identity and like I was so, you know, particularly interested in race to be really, really clear about where I was coming to that from Mm. both as a white person, but particularly as a Jewish person and like what that history was for me. Mm -hmm. So that was really important. I studied education and pedagogy with Jim Sparrow, who worked Mm -hmm. in a school at the time, Mm -hmm. maybe still does. I think, I feel like I did embodiment stuff somehow with Ellie. I'm sure like, you did. <laughs> yeah, like pleasure. Yeah. I think there was stuff about pleasure Either and Ellie or Lisa. <laughs> Lisa was my second reader on, okay. my, on my thesis. I'm not, I can't remember if I actually worked with Lisa for a whole semester besides mm-hmm. that though. Yeah, that's all I remember. And then, you know, so the thesis was like, 
six or eight essays mm-hmm. um, about identity memoir. And then mm-hmm. the rest of it was about using power identities, which I called them. I came up with this phrase. Right. Um, which are like the identities that give and take away power in our mm-hmm. social context, like race, class, gender, age, religion, mm-hmm. sexuality. And you know, creating memoir workshops that were about power identities. Mm. And then ch- recently I read, or I actually listened to it, uh, Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And he uses the term power identities, which I've never heard anywhere. <laughs> and I was so excited. And then I sent his agent an email being like, can you send this to him? Because... <laughs> And oh, I, just, nice. I just wrote him an email being like, I use that term in my thesis. Awesome. And he never wrote me back, but I'm sure it kind of oh. sounded like, that's my term. I came up with it in 2007. <laughs> yeah. Quarter use, please. <laughs> but really, I was just trying to like connect and like yeah. do some solidarity there. And I was just so excited to that's hear so that term fun. being used in the published world. That's awesome. <laughs> like, I... <laughs> I had forgot. I remember I, I wrote this in my notes. I remember um, talking with you. It, it was it was the residency before your thesis semester or in mm-hmm. your thesis semester. And you were trying to I, I think because of I think Lisa Wilde like said that you had to do this. But um, you were trying to find a different word for identity politics because she was like, that's a mm-hmm. real thing. Like, or that's that's a thing that is not your thing. Um, uh-huh. Like, uh-huh. and so yeah, power identity is what you ended up using. Yeah. Um, so is that the way that uh, Ibram X. Kendi uses power identity? Okay, awesome. Yeah. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So it's a clear term. It's a clear term. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> As opposed to like dad. Right, which is an identity, but it's not really a power identity. Right, not necessarily. I mean, right. Maybe slightly, but not yeah. really. <laughs> it could be. Maybe, maybe, maybe when you get your twenty-one percent bonus at work. Mm-hmm. Sorry, <laughs> which is called the, the fatherhood bonus. Dads yeah. get paid more money once Wait. they become dads. What? Oh, really? Oh my God! That. Tell tell us about and this. On the reverse side, there's the motherhood penalty, and moms lose a percentage <gasps> of their pay when they become moms. And one what? British study put the dad bonus at 21%. Whoa. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. What is the motherhood penalty percentage? Do you know? Yeah. I don't remember. I think it was like 13%, but it was already on top of the gender wage gap. Yeah. And so it like ended up being like 30 something percent. Like it ends up being a lot, but it it depends also on your other identities because the gender wage gap depends on your race and you know, and does that count? Is the um, fact that some motherhoods leave the workplace altogether <laughs> like is that fit factored into this? I'm, I'm sure it is. And also, they've done all sorts of studies where, like, if you leave your work for like four years or something to mm-hmm. to be a mom or to take care of a family member, mm-hmm. when you come back, you never recover that. Like mm-hmm. your salary, all like all of the bumps that you would have like accrued during that time, you lose that. And you end up like, if you factor in how much money you lose over a lifetime, it ends up being like half a million dollars. Holy shit. Yeah. Oh man. 
That's a lot. <laughs> Sorry to be a downer. No, no. <laughs> Not at all. Like, I didn't. I didn't know that about the dad bonus. Though. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess it. When you say it, it feels true. <laughs> like it, it feels correct. Um, yeah. I wonder why. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is just like gender roles. I think gender roles get really solidified once you become a parent. Like you go into marriage for man-woman relationships and like things are pretty equal maybe right mm-hmm. now because it's like people are more aware of, mm-hmm. you know, gender stereotypes. But once a baby comes into the picture, like mm. everything in society like pushes us to go into these roles mm-hmm. where one person is the primary breadwinner mm-hmm. and the other person is more of the caregiver. Mm -hmm. Like everything is set up in our society for that to happen. Like school stops at, you know, two 30, but the workday doesn't finish till five or six o'clock. So something has to Mm -hmm. happen with those hours or when the kid is sick, Mm -hmm. who's going to miss work? Mm -hmm. Like the one. And so the mom has like a part-time job or like, you know what I mean? Like, and not everyone, of course. And like, you know, there's tons of single mothers who are working full time. Like this isn't everyone, but if you look at the majority on the scale of, of like of America, mm-hmm. this is like what happens. Yeah. I, I was not working full time anyway, but I am the one who stays home um, with my son. Um, and I like not to name name people, but like I, I have known people who are very advanced in their education and and were more primary breadwinners um but then the the kids happen and then the like gender roles sort of take over and it's it's really interesting and frustrating i i was talking in in the early months of not the early the earliest months of after giving birth it's like there's just no like space to like think about any of that <laughs> for me like there wasn't um any we're just trying to keep him alive <laughs> like, oh, like, it's all about survival know, it's like exhaustion <laughs> it's everybody's survival it's like yeah. we just have no sleep we're i was nursing you know and like um all just just everything um so yeah but like a few months after that um after curtis like went back to work and then like my sort of they call it the fourth trimester like the whatever 12 weeks after you give birth like that that's also considered like a trimester I I don't know what the what the definition is but when the fog started to lift a little bit then mm-hmm. I started getting really pissed and so and like t- like tired in a way that was like wait why do I have to deal with all of this you know and um you know we're uh, we're talking to like mom rage expert but uh, <laughs> it was I I remember like not feeling like I should feel that way. Um, and I, then I was talking like, and I was getting like really pissed at uh, my husband and that was like escalating into like arguments and talking. Th- and then I was, then I started talking to like some friends and they were like, Oh yeah, me too. Like, you know, that first year, like, I'm like, it, it is, they should say at the hospital instead of like all of these like videos about, um, you know, not letting your child sleep in the same bed as you. <laughs> Cause I got like 12 <laughs> videos about that, mm-hmm. um, that I had to sign off and say I had to watch. Like they should also oh say gosh. like, 
if you're if you're partnered and you have your baby, like try not to talk about divorce for the first year. <laughs> because, because it's very easy to get to that place. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Like, so Sam, this is, you know, maybe in your future, but like it's like <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I I'm I'm not very articulate about it. But um yeah, I t- was talking to a friend about it and she was like oh yeah i was like wanted to be out of there like like very not not immediately but like four months or five or six months in it was like this how how have we like how have we ever been together (laughs) like doing doing something together yeah they should Um, make they should have you like sign something that like I will not get divorced in the first year. Yeah. I think um, for, I think when my son, when my son was two, maybe I published a piece in the forward. Okay. That was like an open letter to my husband. <laughs> and it was oh, basically I like, I see the road. Like I see the door. Like the, I see the pathway to divorce. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, you know, it wasn't really a thing that I was thinking about, but like, I see exactly how we get there now. Like that, like that door is like lit up Mm -hmm. and I see exactly how I walk through it. Mm -hmm. And I had never Mm -hmm. like seen how close I was or or I wasn't close, you know, Mm -hmm. but during, during those early years, it's like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I want to be somewhere else. Kind of. It's just, it's brutal. (laughs) The fighting is brutal. Yeah. I was going to ask, I mean, so you're saying earlier, like uh, you articulate yourself and, and, uh, in writing much better than you do in word or in spoken words. I wonder how you were maybe able to use that piece to articulate some of those feelings to your husband. Like how did that sort of, how did that piece help sort of manifest conversations or move things along in a positive way? I mean, honestly, I don't remember exactly, but I'm sure the piece is sweet too. It's all like, you know, I also am like, I love you. I'm sure in some way in that piece. And I would never have published it if it wasn't like that, which, you know, things that you publish also are like, you get to put that perfect spin on it. And, and I don't think it's, I, you know, it's not cheesy that piece. I don't think, I think that the writing like normalizes it for us. Like we're like, this is a hard thing. This is a hard thing. And then you see it on paper and you read it and it just feels so much less like horrific. Mm. somehow mm. when it's on paper mm. and because you see all the like in-betweens and all the details and I don't know it just gives it like a humanity that you like want to forgive yourself and want to forgive the other person a little bit and you just are like it puts it in this greater context where you're like yeah this is really hard mm-hmm. mm. yeah it, like it gives you some humility and like I, I think it helps us like offer each other a little more grace mm-hmm. mm. That's cool. Mm. Yeah. How long after you graduated from Goddard did you become a mother? I graduated in the summer of 2008 and I became a mother um, at the very end of 2012. Okay. So about four years later. I got married right after I graduated. Okay. So fun. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, a few months later, but yeah, like two months later. Yeah. Um, I was hoping you would say like the day after. No, no, no. That's great. (laughs) I graduated in August. We got married in October. Oh, okay. We've been married 14 years. Wow. Congrats. Congrats. That's awesome. (laughs) Um, 
So like I remember when you started posting mom lists. Mm-hmm. Um can you can you talk about that project? Like I still <clears throat> yeah. love reading those lists. Like how how did it how did it come about and yeah. Yeah, is there any future yeah. for it? <laughs> yeah. So after I'll do like a very brief after Goddard, I did my fantasy job. I, you know, basically became a teaching artist. I worked for this amazing program called Writers Corps, which is part of the San Francisco mm-hmm. Arts Commission, okay. um, which was like a three year long residency. I worked at a high school for pregnant and parenting teens. Nice. Wow. Um, for three years. And I worked at the main library with a group with kids from all over the city. And it was mm-hmm. amazing. I loved that job. And I did other sort of workshops around the city. Anyway, eventually that job ended. Mm-hmm. So I had, I had, my first kid in 2012 and that in December. And then that job ended in like May. Okay. And I decided I should be with him. You know, I felt that pressure of like, well, I should hang out with him and like be a mom full time. And I tried that for a while Mm -hmm. and I wasn't really writing. And I just Mm -hmm. like, it didn't, the minute I finished that job with the teens, I was like, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop teaching because for a while anyway, because I just felt like I had no energy for writing and parenting Mm. and teaching, Mm -hmm. like something Mm -hmm. had to go and it wasn't going to be parenting. And (laughs) I really didn't want it to be writing. Yeah. So I basically stayed home more or less for two years and then put our son in more full-time daycare I think it was, so that was 2015. And I was like, okay, I'm going to write. Like I, I, ba- I basically stopped writing for two years mm. and I took myself to a coffee shop every day and like sat and stared at the white page, like dealt with that <laughs> like brutality of the blank page. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a mom, you just like make all these lists or I do anyway, I'm a list maker in general, but I feel like motherhood just like is lists <laughs> somehow like to-do lists and grocery lists mm-hmm. and like you know returning like writing thank you notes to all the people who got you baby shower or whatever mm-hmm. you know whatever like it's mm-hmm. just like there's just so much lists mm-hmm. and so I'm I was very practiced at lists and I didn't know how to start a writing project I didn't know what I wanted to write about and so I just started writing about motherhood and my life as a mom in lists and mm-hmm. so I started doing this project that I called mom lists And once I got enough of them, I started, I wanted, I wrote them, I hand wrote them on these four by six cards. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I needed to do something like visual and physical. And I would punch hole, I would, you know, use an awl and like put holes in the top and then cut a piece of beautiful decorative paper. And and then I would sew it together with book binding thread and then attach a ribbon. And so they could hang from the ribbon and you had to lift the pretty decorative paper layer and then underneath underneath was this like you know brutally honest list mm-hmm. about motherhood like like ways I was productive while my son was at daycare today or foods my child used to eat <laughs> <laughs> you know once he like starts getting rid of all the foods and only right. eats like white foods right <laughs> um you know stuff like that mm-hmm. and I posted them and I made 150 lists I did it for three years and I did 50 oh. I posted around Berkeley where I live 50 in Oakland and 50 in San Francisco and I oh my gosh put them in like coffee shops and yoga studios and laundromats and anywhere anywhere I could think of and then I would take a picture of them and put it on social media Mm, and all these people like started responding and it was really exciting because i felt very like i i think motherhood in america is particularly isolating 
Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I found it hard. I found motherhood to be cha- really challenging. And it was this way to like have a community that I didn't feel like I had. I was one of the first of my friends to have kids too. Yeah. So I didn't have this huge, like, you know, all my buddies didn't have kids. Well, so that that's the mom lists project. They're all on Tumblr. If you go to mm-hmm. whatever it is, tumblr.com slash mom lists <laughs> or momlist.tumblr.com. I don't know. Yeah. But they're all there. Nice. They're, they're yeah. also like in your link tree. Like you can link directly oh, yeah. to the, mm. the mom lists project. Yes. On my Instagram. Yeah. I, I really Ooh. love reading those mom lists um, because especially, especially now because uh, like being a mom, like, they're very digestible and um, I can see how I, I can, I mean, I haven't written a thing um, probably like, except maybe a couple of journal entries, like since, yeah. since I had a kid like business stuff, but like, you know, not, not like creative writing. Um, and I can see how that list form is like, it's kind of like, um, who is that poet who wrote on like receipts, the plums that like Pablo Neruda plums? No, no, no. Like the plums in the ice box, like, or, Oh, Mar- is it? No. Was that Mary Emerson? Emerson? Plums in the ice no, box. No, E.E. Cummings. E.E. Cummings. Yeah. Um, mm. Like he, he writes these like very tiny poems because he was writing on receipts or like, you know, some, something small. And so, uh-huh. Um, it like the form dictated the matter. I don't know <laughs> the content. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. It also felt like it was audience specific, even though I wasn't really doing it for an audience exactly. But it's yeah, it felt like it was the right size for for moms who like mm-hmm. have like you know five minutes of bandwidth to do mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love and it. if it's already, you know, literature, it's in the form of a list and you're looking at lists all day, you don't have to code switch to some other like <laughs> form of input. It's like yes. so easily digestible. Like you yeah. Said. You don't have to like turn on your literature brain or something, yeah. you know, it just like sneaks in there. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Amazing. <laughs> I love it. I was curious, just going back a bit. Um, so you get this dream job that you quote unquote made up. Um, and you talked about a couple places that you worked at through that job. And I'm wondering for people who are also interested in having that made up job, you know, mm-hmm. what is your advice for people who want to get into that and be one of those people who goes to schools and presents and shares in transformative ways? I mean, I think if you can find a program to put yourself into, it's really nice just because then you get the support of a program. It's, it's so much harder to be a freelancer, but once you do, but it's, it, you know, it's the chicken, it's like the chicken or the egg thing. Like you're not going to get hired for the program if you don't have experience. So you have to like find these small community spaces. Like I worked in Kentucky first and worked at like a children's theater and did a workshop. And cool. um, yeah, I did a few, I, a few different ones in Kentucky that like were like my starting place kind of. And then and when I first applied to the one in San Francisco for writer's core, I didn't get it. I had to apply twice. And so that year that I got to San Francisco, I actually worked for this really cool nonprofit called Huckleberry Youth Programs. And they have a diversion program for kids who get arrested for 
teens basically who get arrested um, so that they don't go to juvenile hall and they get all these services instead. And they had a grant randomly for like a girls empowerment group. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I was flexible. Like it wasn't like I went into this being like, I want to do girls empowerment, but like Mm sort of. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I don't yeah. not, yeah. not want to empower girls. <laughs> so, you know, I would do some writing stuff and like it was all workshop facilitation, even if it wasn't all specifically writing based. And mm-hmm. so then I was like connected to San Francisco youth and like that got me into like that population. And so then the next year when I applied to Writers Corps, I had a connection to San Francisco youth and the community more. So that I was less of an outsider coming in from Kentucky being like, put me in with your teens. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Which, you know, which is good. They should be careful about who they're putting in, sure. you know, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. but working with writers Corps was amazing because they had like, they had a mentor, like someone whose job it was to just mentor us. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. You know, they had all this infrastructure, like the ne- there are, I don't know that there are, pro- there's other programs like this. I know for sure in the Bay, I'm, I'm sure there's stuff like this in New York, but I don't know, like, oh, sure, yeah. in the middle of the country, I don't, like between New yeah. York and, and, and the Bay, I don't know what there is. But I would say that if people, if, the, if these programs exist where you are, that like, I would do whatever I could to get into them just because they have so much, you know, years of knowledge and experience to teach you as a teaching artist. And then you have that experience to then be like, I'm a brilliant consultant and you know, practice teaching artists to then be able to do it on your own. And a lot of it is also just like, it's so much like any, you know, self-driven career where you're your own boss. Like it's just a lot of personal motivation and leg power of just Mm -hmm. like getting in the community and convincing people that like you have something to offer. Yeah. And if you want to do it, you're going to do it, right? Yeah. You're going to do it if you want to do it. But I would definitely say like, getting to know and getting connected with the community you want to work with first um, mm. is important so that you are an obvious shoe in to work with them because everyone knows you because you've been there. Like I would get in with the community and learn who they are. Yeah. And you mentioned libraries. I mean, at the very least, even if you don't have enough experience to work somewhere like libraries, should always be looking for programming. You know, I guess every so often there's like a mean librarian who doesn't <laughs> want anything. But, you know, by and large, like librarians are very kind and always accepting of like programs and volunteer work and then want to offer things to the community. So at for the very sure. least, you could just walk into your local library and say, what can I do? Or I have this idea or whatever, you know? Yeah. And especially with like children's stuff and like teen stuff like libraries that actually have teen Mm -hmm. centers like they're always looking for like something someone who can actually bring teens to the library like that's Mm -hmm. a big issue that all Mm -hmm. libraries struggle with how to get teens to come in so if you're someone who's super charismatic and like knows is in like the teen community and has a way to like get teens to come to the library like you're a shoo-in for them yeah. <laughs> I've been talking about that a lot because I'm um, I'm a horror writer and uh, my first novel is coming out next fall and oh, um, congratulations thank you um, but one of the main things that I've been saying about it is that I want to make sure that even though it's like marketed for adults it's like an adult book it's something that teens can read getting like you said getting teens at the libraries is, is difficult and getting them to read is difficult and so you hear so many stories about like, oh, I picked up Stephen King when I was 15 or whatever. So I want to make sure that it's accessible enough that like any 16 year old who's looking for something interesting to read, like 
can enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, in a horror mindset, I always think about horror as that sort of like helpful gateway thing that like, you know, when the Halo video games were big, people were reading a lot of the books that were based in that world. And even mm-hmm. though it's not like high literature, because it's a video game book, you know, quote unquote, it's like getting kids to read, which is great. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. that's my tangent about reading. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel so, like teens, teens are into horror. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, like what makes it, you, what makes your book not for teens necessarily or for like for adults, but not for, te- you, you know I what mean, I mean? Just from a marketing perspective, okay. I don't want to say it's like a YA book, okay, right, you know, yeah. or like, you know, a teen horror, um, right. whatever. Like it's, it's just straight. It's not like adult horror. It's just like straight up horror. You know? Yeah. It's just yeah. Horror. Right. Which is not aimed um, it, yeah. at it's high schoolers. Boxes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> um, but whatever. That's funny. So Minna, the the big the big thing <laughs> that we're that we want to talk about is all the mom rage work that you've been doing. Um, and first, first of all, um, you, in your bio, you said your work was made fun of by Bill Maher. Is that the mom rage work, or is that something else? Yeah, the first New York Times article that I did called The Rage Mothers Don't Talk About, it was published Mm -hmm. in September 2019. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it it did really well. Mm -hmm. But then once the pandemic hit and I wrote a second article in July 2020. Yeah. Because I started getting all these emails from mothers. And I realized they were Googling the term mom rage because moms (laughs) were going nuts in the beginning of the pandemic. And they were finding me. Yeah. So then I wrote that a second piece for the New York Times, which was a reported piece, not an essay, but Mm -hmm. that like spurred the first piece. Right. And so both pieces were kind of just like going viral during that time. Mm -hmm. And someone must, someone on his staff, like must have shown it to him. So even though it was, I I think this is when it was, if I'm getting this right, it, it was eight months old or nine months old. Mm He, he like put my article, the words on the screen okay, and like underlined them or circled them or something and then read them out loud. Wow. And was like, just making fun of moms being mad, just being like, how, how psychotic is this? You know, <laughs> he was just, he was just being a jerk, you yeah. know, yeah. but I was still psyched because it was like the biggest Oh, the most yeah. like fame anything I've ever written has gotten like my words yeah. are on the show, like are on the screen for everyone to read. I was so excited. I didn't even care <laughs> that he was making fun of it. I think him making fun of it is, is a badge of honor. <laughs> right I mean, I kind of think so too. Yeah. I'm just like, whatever. Yeah. Thank you for the publicity. <laughs> well, and like, <laughs> Everybody's been made fun of for something at some point. So I think there's a part of all of us that if a piece of work is being made fun of, we want to see what it's about. We're sure. like, oh, you know, yeah. we're interested. Yeah. And also, I'm sure there were people also watching that show who were like, wait, I want to read that. Like, yeah. I know, I know yeah, what that that's talking about, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I read that essay, the, the rage mothers don't talk about when it was first published. I remember mm-hmm. in 2019 and I was telling you, Minna, before we, before we got started, how there was just no way before I had a child that I would tr- 
truly be able to understand what all of this was. Um, I, I, you know, I can hear, I can hear about other people's mother stories, but then when I had a kid, I'm like, oh, oh, that's what that is. Um, but I have to thank you because like I resonated in a way that I was like, oh, it's okay not to be like a perfect mom, so to speak. Um, it's mm-hmm. okay, you know, psychologically I could, I could understand that, but like, you know, embodied, um, once, once I was going through it, I was like, I was like, oh, right. <laughs> like, this is not just me. Like I, I, talk to friends and went to therapy and started medication and like, but all of that was like, I think the seed was planted because I've been reading your work for so many years and being Mm -hmm. like, Oh, okay. It's okay. Like there are moms out there that aren't like the perfect Instagram moms or Facebook moms or whatever. Like I don't have to post only beautiful pictures of my child (laughs) and you know, purport to be this i don't know the too good mother is was that that's like a thing i think it's like a i think too good mother is like a good enough mother the good enough okay maybe that's maybe that's what i'm thinking about i don't remember who said that which is but that's a different that's different than the too good mother yeah maybe i made it up and i'm like thinking that there's madonna mother image that that people are supposed to be so yeah I mean, honestly, it's just mother. It's just America's mm. version of mother. Yeah. It's just like the mainstream vision of what mothers are. Right. There's no other, there's no other word in front of it. I mean, I, ra- mm-hmm. I write about it in the mom rage book, like mm-hmm. in front of the word mother is mm-hmm. like this silent in parentheses good. Yeah. Yeah. Like a mother has to be a good mother. Yeah. Like we, that's how we good, quiet, think about mothers. Patient. Yeah. Right. Right. Mar- martyr. Uh-huh. Yeah. So. Mm. Like you, you talked a little bit about that, but what has some of the response been as you've been writing about mom rage over the last three years? What are some of your like favorite or like difficult responses that you've, that you've had uh, from those articles? Just getting moms to say, oh my God, like I thought I was the worst mother in the world. Mm Mm-hmm thank you for showing me that I'm not alone. Like that's pretty gratifying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Some of my favorite have been the moms who like reached out to me to tell me that they're okay. Like that they had moms who raged. Oh, okay. And that like, I had this one mom who wrote to me and was just like, my mom is like my best friend. She's the first person in my life that I want to tell when like good things happen. And like me and my brother have a really close relationship with her. And, you know, and I was, you know, like, tell me your story. How did that happen? You know, I want to know that. Like, because I think that's every mom who rages. I think that's, er that's the fear. That's Mm. the fear underneath is that you're going to hurt your kids, that Mm. you're going to damage them. I mean, I think that's the fear of, of parenthood in general, right? That we're all like imprinting on our children and they're going to be in therapy in 20 years talking about us and how we destroyed (laughs) them. Right. (laughs) Rage or no rage. Right. Right. Yeah. And I had another mom. Uh, write to me about her that she raged when her kids were little and now they're in their 40s and they have kids Mm -hmm. and that she like still has nightmares about it and her kids are fine and like she's close to her kids and everything's fine yeah but like that like that shame and that guilt around it and how terrible it feels and just how stressful motherhood is like i 
I just like, I cannot imagine I'm just being like in my seventies and having anxiety dreams about mom rage. Oh my God. That, <laughs> like, that's that's, that is my nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, would you mind if I asked about your relationship with your own mother then and how some of that has influenced your work? Yeah. I mean, I don't remember my mom yelling like at all. I don't have yelling parents. Like this is all fresh for me. I think (laughs) (laughs) I can't blame my parents on this one. Um, I'm, I'm really close to my parents. I talk to them all the time. And I, I mean, I would say that my mom influenced me just like as an artist. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. like, I remember Maybe it was high school. No, it was probably before high school, like middle school. I think she got laid off from a job. She was at, she taught at Temple University in Philly. Mm. And she just like for a few years, like went up into the attic and would start painting. Oh. Mm. And like my mom was not a painter. Mm. She just started painting and then she was in the basement for a few years and got like this art buddy and they would make these huge installation pieces out of concrete and they would go like there in Philly at city hall, there's this huge clothespin, like okay, multiple stories high, this humongous red clothespin. It's like a meeting spot. Meet you at the clothespin. And, uh, <laughs> and she like, you know, they did some art project where like they dyed all these clothespins and they stamped, you know, small questions on them, like is bigger, better. And they would pass out the clothespins at the huge clothespin. Uh, you know, so they did all this like interactive art. And in a way I'm like, Oh, that's a lot like the mom list where I would stamp each one with this mom list stamp. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when I was trying to figure out what to do for my project and I was like dreaming about mom lists and like just in those like brainstorming phases, I remember being on the phone with her and her being like, maybe you could turn them into stickers and just like put them on mailboxes, just like graffiti the city in these mom stickers. You know, so That's she's so like, cool. That's yeah, cool. she like definitely is like an art and inspiration for me. She started Art Blog, which is this cool Philly uh, website that talks about all the art happening in Philly. Wow. So she's, you know, she's like an, she's an active, an art activist in her way. Nice. <laughs> That's so but, cool. but I have nothing to say about her really in real in relation to mom rage. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So with your with the mom rage you've experienced, um, it, you're you're a few years away from the essay that you wrote, but I mean you had experienced it before writing it for the New York Times. <laughs> yes. Right now, and like as you're writing your book, Mom Rage. Where do you, not where does it, I mean, yes, where does it come from? But like, where did you think it came from? And how has that evolved over, over the time that you've been processing? I think I thought it came from the situation that was pissing me off. Mm -hmm. And I think over time, I have learned that there is all of this other stuff going on. That's much bigger than that little situation. Like if my partner says something that makes me feel like he's belittling my parenting, you know, like I'll be like, no, you know, I'll say no. And then he'll say from the other room, I think it's okay. 
Right. And then my kid hears that. And then my kid knows like, the, oh, there's an in here. No, it's okay. Daddy said it's okay. And I'm like, what the heck? Why did you just do that? Like, I'm in the middle of a parenting moment. Like, your opinion is not needed here. Right. You know, like that kind of situation where like in that moment, and I, I would get really mad at him mm-hmm. and it would feel like it was just about that. But like, there's all like, that's just like, that's really like the cherry on top. Mm-hmm. of like this un- this like under the water mountain mm-hmm. of stuff mm-hmm. that has been brewing of all the ways that I feel disempowered mm-hmm. through motherhood and there's ways that I feel empowered through motherhood as well mm-hmm. but societally I think that mom that that people are disempowered by motherhood mm-hmm. and so and 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 it comes out in all these different gender ways with my partner mm-hmm. And then it also just comes out like with like the isolation, the way that we expect families to just be alone. And then because of gender stuff, it ends up being the mother who's just alone. And so there's just this whole just pile of pressure and work that's on the mother by herself. And at the same time, she has lost this other part of herself like she has become in order to be a mother she has had to like erase this former self and that doesn't mean that she doesn't get some of that back and like learn to integrate them Mm -hmm. the old self and the new self but in order to become a mom there is like this self erasure that must take place Mm -hmm. at least right now in america Mm -hmm. and it's it is a a kind of stressful and maddening process. And while you're going through that self erasure, everyone around you is looking at you and being like, isn't it the best, (laughs) you know, or like, Mm. Oh, they're so sweet. Oh, they grow up so fast. Enjoy every moment. And you're like, (laughs) your nipples are leaking and Mm. you like, you know, everything's a mess. And like, you haven't slept in five months and like, you want to kill everyone. And it's just like, it's sort of like this gaslighting experience. Mm -hmm. The culture is gaslighting you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it like the whole, I just feel like motherhood is like, especially early motherhood is Mm -hmm. this tornado Mm -hmm. of emotion and work and pressure and uh, like disempowerment. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, and there's all the good stuff too. Like I'm not erasing the good stuff. Mm -hmm. I just feel like the good stuff is all that gets talked about. Like the other, Mm -hmm. I, I want to talk about mom rage because Otherwise it's erased Mm -hmm. and it's, it's like the good stuff is like this intense lid and you have to like break through it to like show this tiny bit of like, maybe this isn't all the way true. Maybe this other stuff is happening. Hmm. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I, yeah, I, I absorb all of this and I, was talking to a friend, the the friend that I was mentioning earlier about how we weird it is, quote unquote. Um, especially, so I'm 42, and I just turned 42, so I'm 40. I was 41 when I had this conversation. <laughs> Happy belated birthday, Thank by the you. way. Thank you. Just a couple days ago. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but so I had my baby when I was 41, got pregnant when I was 40. And so it's, it's incredibly wild to think of 
I had all of this stuff that I was doing, writing, thinking, you know, all of this education uh, that I had before I became a mother. And mm-hmm. then I become a mother. And all of that, I, I remember looking at my bookshelves in the living room. Uh, I was I was nursing. I was like going through like the every two hours, setting my alarm like throughout the night uh, so I could wake up and feed my child. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like looking at this bookshelf of all of these books that like just speak to all of the things that I have studied in the past, mythology, poetry, creative nonfiction, essays fiction and uh, history. And I'm like, what the fuck is the point of all of this? I was like, should I just throw all of these away? Because like, I don't think I'll ever read these again. (laughs) It just kind of felt like, like uh, that part of me was like done. And so I was like, but that can't be true. Is it like, I mean, I, maybe one day I'll care about this stuff again or like have time for it again. I don't know. But like, I'm like, it's, it is a really strange thing to think that before, like all, all of that time before didn't mean anything, so to speak. And I was like that, I, I, I don't know how to like reconcile that. And you know, that, that, uh, and then like my friend, it's like the same. She's, she's like trying to like get a job, get, you know, figure out like what to do. And she's like, but am I supposed to just be taking care of my kids? Like, you know, and all of that. I'm like, I, I don't know. (laughs) I don't have the answer for you, but it can't be that all of this time that we spent all of this money that we spent on like education is for nothing. Right. Like mm-hmm. I was like, I think that's part of this rage, like at least for us, you know, like part of the like rage of having, having to, like you said, erase that part of ourselves, especially like in these early years. Um, I mean, my son's not a, even a year yet, like even, even having, the most supportive partners, like, which I do, uh, like, I have, like, a, an incredibly supportive husband who wants me to, like, have time for writing and have time for doing stuff. But uh, but him saying, uh, you need to take time for self-care. I'm like, when the fuck am I going to do that? <laughs> like, I was like, I was like, I, you know, held him on my lap while I was pooping today <laughs> like, because Incredible. I didn't want to. I didn't want to hear the crying, you know? So like if I put him down, so I was just like, how am I supposed to make time for self care? Like that, that feels like it becomes another job. It becomes (laughs) another thing to do. Another thing on your to-do list. Let me do my self care. Right. And I'm like, isn't that, I'm like, why is that my burden, <laughs> you know, to like make time? Like, like right. you, you help me make time. Right. You make the time. You say, yeah. I'm going to be on childcare right. from Saturday, from wake up until nighttime. Right. You, you pump today so that yeah. I'll have all the milk and yeah. you just go do your thing. You're off for the full day. Right. <laughs> you make the time for me. So how do you, Minna, like you, you have said that, um, <laughs> You're a mom rage workshop facilitator, like, which I think would be incredibly useful to new moms <laughs> or, or maybe not even that new mom. Um, how do you 
work with moms to understand mom rage. I don't know if alleviate or just like experience, like what do you do with, what do you do with moms? (laughs) I've, I've actually only done like two or three mom rage workshops. Mm -hmm. So I'm still sort of figuring it out. Mm -hmm. And there's so Mm -hmm. many angles to it that like, it really depends on what people want. Mm -hmm. Like it could take, it could definitely be a series because there's so many like aspects of it. And I don't, like to some extent, I don't believe in the that the alleviation of mom rage is possible, right? Because so much of it is societally, like centered, mm-hmm. and so if the society doesn't change, like it's not really going to change. Like mm-hmm. I don't believe in breathing techniques for right. fixing mom rage. Like I just don't. I don't believe in all <laughs> the like snake oil saleswomen on. Instagram and their mm-hmm. mom rage workshops, mm-hmm. which is sort of why I'm not doing mom rage workshops. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to say to people? <laughs> um, in the ones I have done, like the best part of it is the end when people like, when it's like the, the Q and a part and everyone just starts talking mm-hmm. because that's what people want to do. That's what moms want to do. Like mm-hmm. they just want to name their experience and mm-hmm. have it mirrored back to them because it is mm-hmm. so lonely, mm-hmm. both motherhood and the experience of mom rage. So, you know, in, in the book, I do have like the self-help sort of portion of the book and I hate self-help books. So I'm a little <laughs> like wary to even say that I don't tell moms what to do, but mm-hmm. I talk about like some of my experience of like delving into my own mom rage to try and understand it better mm-hmm. to try and figure out like where did this rage come from why is this certain thing a trigger for me why do i always flip out about x mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and so i'm able to like talk about that and talk about how i do that and i could i could theoretically do it in like a, a workshop mm-hmm. <laughs> but i'm less interested in it in doing that. I'm not like a self-help workshop facilitator. Like I would be more interested in doing writing workshops around mom rage to help moms, Mm -hmm. to help moms express what their rage is about, or even just to write about a rage moment. Cause just writing about it, like, as we know from like transformative language arts, right. Mm -hmm. Bring healing. Mm -hmm. So I think that it would be more about, what I would be interested in doing with mom rage workshops, or I mean, maybe also just explaining it. Like mm-hmm. I think that most, I think most moms really see it in the way that I saw it for so long, which is like, you're doing this thing. It's pissing me off. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I talk about in the book, like the kid drops the jar, it crashes, mom yells. It's like this one-to-one corollary. It's super easy to understand. It's how the world sees mom rage and it places the blame directly on the mother, which mm-hmm. is what we're comfortable with as a society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I would want to use, if I was going to do mom rage workshops, it would be to like complicate that story mm-hmm. and to talk about what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Do you address and, or have you worked with like ways to change the society around moms and expectations and yeah. that, that might lead to mom rage? I do. I mean, it's a pretty tall, it's a tall task, Absolutely. right? I definitely like struggled with that in, in writing the book. I, and I think all books where there's like a societal problem, mm-hmm. like, and you're like, are you, am I going to offer the societal solution? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, bring down the patriarchy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
So yeah, how do yes. we do that? <laughs> we got ten minutes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I do talk about like the power. If we if we could organize, like if moms could organize, we actually are the most are so powerful. Like mm-hmm. the entire system of capitalism is based on our unpaid labor, mm-hmm. and if we didn't do it our society would fall like yeah we do hold the power mm-hmm. we just are not organized right so it's not that i don't exactly say like let's all hold hands and like fuck shit up yeah but- Liz Estrada, like our children i was just thinking about that because i was like it's interesting because that's so true and it's such an old idea in a lot of ways like the liz estrada comes to mind and like mm-hmm. how do you apply that to kids right mm-hmm. like how do you what's the sex thing that you i think you just like, leave your children at home and like figure it say, out partners yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I talk about the iceland women's strike oh tell us i don't know about and that i think it was in the 70s <laughs> where they weren't it was about the gender wage gap in iceland okay. And they, they all decided there was going to be a day where women weren't going to work and they didn't go to work and they didn't watch the kids and they all like went to, everyone didn't, yeah, didn't work. And then I think like tons and tons and tons of people went to like some big square, you know, and protested and the country shut down. Airlines couldn't fly because there was no people to like run it or no, you know, flight attendants on the news. You could hear children in the background because <laughs> the men had to bring the kids to work. Mm-hmm. Wow, you know awesome. what I mean. And then they elected the first, like the, I think the first democratically elected woman president. Then happened, wow. and it was in Iceland, and she was a divorced mom. Wow. Um, and then I forget what the stat is, but like their their Congress or their Parliament, you know, had like six percent women at the time or something like that, and now it's like forty percent or forty four percent, and they still have a gender wage gap, but they're still fighting it too. Mm-hmm. They walk out at the time of day where they stop getting paid when you compare it to men's. Mm. So like they'll walk out at two thirty eight, and then four years later they walked out at like. 256 ah, you know and so like that's cool. cool anyway i use it as an example of like they're like you know it's not perfect it's not like everything in iceland got fixed and there's no issues or anything you know but like i use it as an example just to say like we have power if we if we organized right um and then i also just talk a lot about like creating alternative family structures that mm-hmm. like that part of the problem is just the isolation of the nuclear family mm. And the way that our, our society funnels it, where one one parent, if there, if it's a two parent family specifically, men man woman, where the man works, mm-hmm. and everything falls on the mom. But if we have alternative family structures where more people are helping out in the home, and there's more adults, and we're not just like in these tiny boxes, all of us separated from each other, it would just be a different story of work. Like the mm-hmm. workload would be different. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah, it is. It is really interesting. Like I, my brain is like firing different stories, but I'm thinking of like with that, with the alternative family structures, like my parents are from the Philippines um, Mm -hmm. and my mom grew up as one of 12 kids. Uh, She's the youngest girl. And in that family, like the nuclear family didn't really 
exist in that same way. Like in that family and in a lot of like Filipino families, it's the older kids take care of the younger kids. And so it's, and in in tons of cultures around the world. Yeah. It's interesting. And, And then, you know, the, like aunts and uncles are like all nearby. And so it's, there's definitely always someone to like watch the smaller kids. And so, and that, I mean, that's not a culture that I grew up in or like, you know, currently have, but it is, uh, I can see it being like really helpful. Um, I, I recently went on a trip to Canada to visit my dad, but I brought Rafa, my baby. Um, and I was, I was always like, I was planning to do that. And my cousin who, who is a mom of two and my sister, who is a mom of six, were both like, okay, we're coming with you <laughs> because my husband had to work. He, he had to stay behind and my cousin lives here in New York. And so she was like, I'm booking the same flight as you. Like, so you don't have to like go by yourself. I was like, I'll be fine. It would, it was going to be the first trip like with me and me and Rafa, just like the two of us. And oh my God, I am so grateful <laughs> that they were there, like, especially as moms, like, because even if Rafa wouldn't go to them because some, because he's separation anxiety right now, but like yeah. they were there to do all the other shit. <laughs> like, they and were to in, support and to support you. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. totally. Like they made plates for me, <laughs> like, like for like dinner and, right, right. um, that's so beautiful. If, if he had fallen asleep, like if he fell asleep, like they would try to like get him from me, like so that so that I could like do other things, you know, mm-hmm. like. Um. So yeah, it was it was so nice and like really helpful. And I'm like, oh my god, I'm so. I told them many times. I'm like, I am so glad that you are both here <laughs> because yeah. also like it was if I had to take Rafa, like, cause he was like screaming or having a meltdown or just had to nap, they were there for each other. They were there to like hang out with my dad. And like, so it was just like, just like a really nice community. And for, for that like week and my, my older sister, the one who has six kids, um, I remember her having this experience when she had like, I don't know, three or four kids. I, I don't remember how many kids she had had at the time. But she, a gaggle. Uh, yeah, some, some <laughs> gaggle of kids. But um, she and a friend who had like three kids, they like they were they were all visiting each other. So the husbands were there too. And like, so it was just this like m- massive like people. And the husbands were doing something one day. And my sister and her friend were like washing dishes, watching kids, like doing, you know, just different things without having to like explain to each other, oh, the kids need this. Oh, the kid, you know, like, oh, can you do this? And, you know, there's just this kind of unspoken thing. (laughs) And my sister said like, oh, I kind of get the whole sister wives thing now. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Like why that is a thing and why that would work as like, a home structure. <laughs> yes. I'm about the sister wives. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's like <laughs> nice to just have somebody like there who just knows what needs to be taken care of, you know, yeah. and yeah. like you trust to do it. So, yeah, 
It would be in, like it's it's interesting. And and my sister lives in Tallahassee, Florida, um, and has like her friends all kind of have kids around the same age. So they do sort of have this community where like they can like work with pickups and like all of that, you know, like mm-hmm. um, and I'm like, oh, that's really nice. <laughs> like maybe when my son is older i can like yeah, figure that out it. yeah yeah but, for sure yeah have you read essential labor by uh no, angela garbus no i haven't uh it's beautiful it's a great book it's it's also it just came out this year and it's also mm. a social critique and memoir about motherhood Ooh. and she's filipina and oh. so there's a lot of her story in there too and her family story i think i've heard about it but i haven't read it yet no yeah, that's awesome essential yeah. labor okay cool cool yeah no, that's really cool. How how is your community of moms in the Bay Area? Um, I think it's definitely. I feel like I've been slowly cultivating it. My mm-hmm. kids are nine and five now. Yeah, almost ten and six. Mm-hmm. So I've had time mm-hmm. <laughs> to cultivate it. I certainly didn't have it when my kid was nine months old. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is amazing to be like, can you pick up my kid? you know, or like the drop offs and pickups help. I mean, we have a school bus, so we don't have too much of that. But mm-hmm. um, I have a couple people, my cousin lives close by, plus I have a friend and we do babysitting swaps. That's awesome. Um, awesome. Well, like, ev- even if like, even if we can't, I mean, we could because my kids are old enough, but one of them, I probably couldn't babysit her kids. But we'll just like go over at eight o'clock, like they'll put down their own kids. Mm-hmm. And I'll just go sit on the couch. Yeah. And her and her partner will go out. Yeah for a couple hours just like anything like that Mm -hmm. is just like so important like my cousins they both me and my cousins have grandparents in the area separate grandparents Mm -hmm. and they cannot watch our kids for more than like a night it's just too much for them right and we don't know how to go on vacation i have without our children yeah. I have not gone on a vacation without my children, mm. you know, in 10 years. <laughs> and my cousins just went to Mexico for their 10 year anniversary and they just like cobbled together all of their friends. And I came over and stayed at the house for 24 hours. And then a different friend came over and stayed at the house <laughs> for 24 yeah. hours. And like, I'm like, that is what we have to do. Like, yeah. it's so important to, to build that sort of community mm-hmm. to be able to do it. And I feel like, with writing the book and and writing about mom rage in addition I've also grown community through that yeah like I found other you know I've definitely found other mom writers uh in the area nice. and we've done a couple of writing retreats together we ha- I have one next week actually and Ooh. that community is like slowly building and feeling really good yeah so I feel like it's it's, it's happening I love that I feel like it'll be perfect cool. once they're like 18 then it'll be over <laughs> 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 a little different set of problems then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it'll take me 20 years to cultivate the perfect mom community. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, do you have, with the mom community and with thinking about like the different like structures that we build for ourselves to like, su- to support our motherhood um, job? <laughs> It is a job. Um, Mm -hmm. It is. How do you negotiate and prioritize your writing time? Mm. Well, I'm very lucky in that I have a partner who is the primary breadwinner. Mm -hmm. I mean, until I got 
this book sold, I hadn't made money in like, I don't know, years. Mm -hmm. I'm very much like living that artist mom life where I'm just like toiling away, hoping that one day I'll make some money at this. Mm -hmm. And I'm only able to do that because my partner makes enough money that we are surviving. I mean, we don't like, you know, we, we can't buy a house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, like we do fine, but it's the Bay area, yeah, right? It's same. super expensive. So like, <laughs> we're, so I'm able to prioritize it because I have that, I have that financial luxury mm -hmm. of him making enough money that I get to do this as my day job. Okay. Like mm -hmm. I get to wake up, take my kids to the school bus mm -hmm. and have the, have the day until five o'clock to work, nice. which what, which was not always the case until just recently, like really mm -hmm. recently yeah. because my, my older kid was, he didn't go to like regular public school till first grade. So it wasn't okay. until he was six and a half mm -hmm. that I had like a full day. And even then it was only till three o'clock. Right. Mm -hmm. Because he was a kid who needed to be at home. He needed to not be in like regular school. Mm -hmm. So, and then the pandemic happened. Yeah. So I got six months of it where I had my daughter in preschool oh, in like full-time preschool and he was in school till three o'clock. I, you know, I got till March Yeah. and then the <laughs> pandemic hit. So like, it's like, I'm like just getting my sea legs back yeah. around. Like I am a, I am a writer mm -hmm. and I am writing as my job. Like, I feel like I'm really just with this book have been able to do that mm -hmm. full time. And it has definitely, it's definitely been a journey to prioritize it. Like, even if, even if my partner doesn't pray, like, even if my partner prioritizes it, I still like yeah. have trouble, trouble doing it. Yeah. Like, you know, there's, there's a school holiday mm -hmm. and like, I used to, it would just be me who would have to do it. And I have started to be like, okay, I want to split Monday. Cause my, cause he works 1230 to five on Monday. So I'm like, okay, okay I'm going to, I'm going to work from eight to 1230. Mm -hmm. Like I've started to just like, I am, he would probably describe me as like being really intense around it, but I'm pretty intense around it. Yeah. Like, if, <laughs> Yeah. I'm just like, this is my time. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, I'm a little, I'm, I'm very, uh, what's the word where you're like, I don't know. Um, yeah, like, I guess so. I'm just like, I feel strong ownership over my hours. Mm -hmm. And if like something gets in the way of it, I'm kind of like, can we make this up? Like I'm intense mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. Or protective, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm very, I'm very protective of it. Like when my parents come to visit now, and this has taken years. When my parents come to visit, I'm like, great, I'll see you at five every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. If if I had any other sort of job, I wouldn't take off every time they come to visit. They come to visit like three times a year. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I wouldn't be able to take a week three times mm -hmm. a year. Right. So I'm just like, I'm pretty protective of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Good for you. Yeah. I think yeah. that's super important. That's a room of one's own. Like, it, I mean, it's essential to, I think, to protect your writing time. I suck at that. <laughs> I sucked at it when my kid was nine months, too. Yeah. <laughs> it just, yeah. It's um, even when Curtis, like, like you were saying, like when your partner prioritizes, prioritizes your writing time, uh, like, I. If, if he's like, okay, I got the baby, you you go ahead, you know, like, and, and he does, he, I trust him to have the baby. Um, I'll come in here and then I'll like go on Facebook or I'll, 
look at videos of my baby that's out there. <laughs> like, <laughs> just like, that's weird. Like, that's silly. But I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, it's, I don't know. My brain can't. I was going to say your, your brain needs a zone out break. Like you just like when you're mothering, you're just so vigilant all the time. Like, it's like, you just need to like lie down and do nothing. I have never wanted TV so badly as when I was a mother. Like, Oh my God. Just like, it's like a desperate need. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I'll like put the kids to bed and I'm like, where is a screen (laughs) must turn brain off. Like it's intense. (laughs) That's true. I never thought about it that way. Like, because I'm like behind because he's pulling himself up now and he's cruising and oh, uh, yeah. he's going to develop that <laughs> pincer th- grip like like um whatever very soon grasp uh, like very soon because uh, it's, it's coming. And I'm like terrified of when he can pick up coins like because my sister's kids, two of them, like both like swallowed coins and had to go to the emergency room and so i'm just oh, yeah, like oh my god he stuck a dime up his nose yeah. and had to go to the emergency yeah. room yeah my, my, <laughs> my niece stuck a dime and then my nephew like a penny or something i'm like awesome yeah. like so, <laughs> and i was there when my niece did it and i'm just like this is yeah okay so so i'm terrified about that every single day but yeah, he's pulling himself up and like he's he's getting like stronger but he still can't stand on his own so like i I'm like behind him a lot, <laughs> like like <laughs> concerned about his falling. And so, yeah, the TV, like in this, in the streaming era, I mean, they can have all my money, <laughs> like all of them, <laughs> Netflix, Hulu, and they Prime, do. they do, they have all my money, <laughs> like, Disney plus, like HBO. I mean, it's, it's, I, it's good that I can share these services, like with like my mom. <laughs> something like because yeah same i feel like that's the new definition of family of who you share yeah, who do you streaming share? passwords yeah. with it's true. yeah <laughs> it's true um yeah like i uh, yeah like i i don't know how many great british bake off like shows i've like watched um just in the last few like because i would watch it and then i would watch it again and again and again you know like because it was just like very soothing yeah and like a really easy thing to turn my brain off so good for you <laughs> for like getting 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 out of it i don't know how to how to express that, i mean i got out of it with the lists with the mom list yeah and it wasn't well, until two years in my cousin said like she's like yeah two years postpartum is like like or but my friend said three years so i don't know but like well it's different for everybody yeah. there is no yeah you know thing yeah and it's funny how uh, little time we're given to recover, like postpartum. They're like, oh, 12 months, like, or, or 12 weeks, like you're, you're done. Like people, people go back to work after 12 weeks postpartum. And I'm like, that's oh, yeah. bananas. <laughs> I think it's, isn't it six weeks? Some people. Yeah. Isn't it six weeks that you have the final appointment? Oh, yes. Six weeks is the final appointment. Yeah, yeah, I think I went back after six weeks. Holy shit. Wow. He was like, you're cleared for sex. <laughs> you can go back to work. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, that's cool. Not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, yeah, a ridiculous amount of mothers go back in, like within that's, two weeks. You're, I mean, you're still bleeding. No yeah. matter what, no matter how you had your baby. Because I had a cesarean and I was still bleeding. Mm. Um 
you know, if that's TMI, it's sorry. <laughs> like, but, no. um, but yeah, like it's, I don't know how this world society express expects us to recover post <laughs> post birth. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the societal solutions I talk about is mother care that like mm. we, we need, we don't have any mother care in this country. Mm. It's all centered on the baby. Mm-hmm. Nobody's taking care of the mother. No one's looking at the mother. Mm-hmm. Mm. That that focus needs to shift. I agree. Yeah. I think like postpartum doulas should be like just part of our health insurance. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like someone who someone who's there to like feed you and clean your house. <laughs> Um, while, while you're taking care of the baby. One of the moms I talked to who lives in the Netherlands, they have someone called a a Kramzorg. I'm probably sure I'm butchering that. Mm. And you know, it's a midwife that comes to the house and like, make sure the baby's doing all the things Mm -hmm. and that you're like feeding the baby right. And et cetera. But like, it is in their job description to go grocery shopping for you. Oh, I love that. You know, (laughs) and they come for like a few weeks, Nice, like checking on you and checking on the baby and like washing dishes. (sighs) Can you imagine in America? <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. amazing. I mean, I'm, I am very fortunate in that my husband performed all those tasks like postpartum, um, and continues to do so. Like, I mean, I don't, I, I used to wash dishes. I have not been able to wash dishes in like months. <laughs> I used to wash dishes. <laughs> yeah, pre-birth, I washed dishes. When I'm watching the baby, I can't also be washing dishes, and he doesn't like to be put down, so it's it's a whole thing. I've tried to, like, wear him washing dishes, and, like, it's too far for me to no, reach. No. I'm just like, eh, fuck it. They'll get washed later <laughs> when, he's, <laughs> when he's down for the night. So, Mina, Mom Rage, The Everyday Crisis of Modern Motherhood. Yep. Tell us when it's coming out. When can people order it? You may not know those details because we are recording this like pretty early, but uh, we will be releasing this in the spring. So, yeah. Tell us Um, about it. The book comes out in September Mm -hmm. 2023. Great. A little less than a year, just in time for my birthday. Nice. And I don't know when it's going to be available on pre-order, but I assume that by the time this episode comes out in the spring, there will be a link available for people to pre-order it. And it's so important to pre-order books. Oh, yeah. So please do that. Awesome. We will definitely (laughs) circle back and get the pre-order link in the show notes. And can people... Do you do you write a newsletter? Like, do people can people? I don't. Look? I have feelings yeah. about newsletters. I won't do it. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all respect to people doing newsletters, but I'm like, I'm not doing that unpaid labor. Yeah, um, a lot. But I do. Um, I mean, occasionally I'll send out an email, <laughs> and I might call it a newsletter. I don't think I've sent one out in like two years. Oh, that's so funny. Um, I'm, but yeah, but you can sign up for my non-existent newsletter uh-huh. on my website. Awesome. At the top, there's a little bar where you can mm-hmm. put in your email. And when I send awesome. out my <laughs> newsletter, quote unquote, which or I'm sure I'll send. you hire somebody to do it because that right. is totally legit. Sure. Yeah, I should probably do that because I'm so technologically not advanced. It takes me like five hours to write a newsletter. Um, but people should follow me on Instagram mm-hmm. at Minna Dubin. On my Instagram link in the link tree, I have links to a lot of stuff, including the, that mom list project. You can see all 150 lists. And mm-hmm. then if you go to my my website, minadubin.com, 
in the media section, I have like at the moment anyway, unless I change it, I have basically a link to everything I've ever <laughs> published. I love it. And, and all the press, all the, mm-hmm. you know, TV stuff, it's all there. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. And do you have like a tour planned or readings? Like, do you know about uh, any of that yet? No, Not I don't yet. have it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hope I do one. I want to, you know, I would love to do one or two things here in the Bay. And yeah. then I would really like to do something in Philly yeah. and something in New York. Yeah, definitely. So Ooh, and we'll if you see. come to New York, please like let me know so I can come and we can visit and all of that good stuff. Yeah, I will. I mean, I'll do something, you know, anywhere that someone wants to bring me to. Just putting that out there. Nice. Okay, awesome. Bring me to your book yeah, club. Bri- yeah, bookstore, all of that. Um, yeah. That's great. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yay. Well, cool. Thank you for talking to us today. This was great. I feel like I got a lot out of this and I'm so far <laughs> from being a mom. So <laughs> did you were you glad you attended our motherhood seminar? I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. Like even hearing you talk about the uh, mom rage workshops, I'm like I'm gonna like you know, sit in the back of one and just like absorb and, and learn, you know, even if it's not my workshop. I just wanna I, cause I'm curious. I want to know more. You know? I mean, but, I think like partners should know about mom. Rage. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I mean. like, like there should you know. be a partner version for mom. Yeah, rage. You know, <laughs> I, will, yeah. I will say that, that the book is, is, is going to be really good for partners. Like it is oh, okay. if like, I think for, for moms who have partners who want to understand it, like it's very hard to explain it. You know, yeah. I think just like if I was a mom, dealing with mom rage, I would give this book to my partner. There's a whole section on partners. Oh, great. Like what partners can do, how partners can be involved and not like stay on enemy, like sidelines. Like (laughs) I really do talk a lot about partners and their role in mom rage and how they can also help alleviate it. Oh, yeah. I love that. That's great. Like, cause it's very easy to entrench in a relationship. Like, and even you have these like fleeting arguments while you're like walk by a room and it's like two lines of dialogue back and forth and then you're just deeper entrenched you're like a little <laughs> bit of a fuck you and you know um, see so you funny. know about mommy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get it. Um, but uh yeah so having um you know that aspect for partners i think it's really important like how do you do this uh not only like addressed towards moms but also to partners and to teams. Like how do, how do we do this? You know? mm-hmm. so yeah. I think it's all, about, I feel yeah. like I learned a lot. <laughs> so, um, well, thank you for having but, me. Oh my God. Thank yeah, you so thank much you. for spending the time. This was great. I, I definitely yeah. got a lot out of it for sure. <laughs> and, and, you know, I didn't say this, but I will say for Goddard, like as mm-hmm. a plug that I, you know, I do think that the work that I'm doing now is still, it's the same work. Like I'm still, telling my stories and talking about identity, although the identity is, is mother sure. at this point, which I mm-hmm. do think is a power identity. Mm-hmm. And then I'm, I'm sort of like couching my story in the, in the societal vision of it and mm-hmm. seeing how, like how it plays a role and how all this stuff is happening underneath the surface. Like mm-hmm. I'm still doing the same thing. Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. a new thing that I'm looking at. Yeah. No, that's amazing. And, yeah, cool. and, and I really do love how you have, built community around the mom lists, the mom rage, like it, it, it is like 
incredibly helpful for me as a new mom to know that there are people out there like and and your writing is just so vivid that it really uh resonates <laughs> it really resonates um you're welcome i'm sorry yes. <laughs> thank you and yeah <laughs> but yes no it's it's awesome so i i advise everybody to to follow Mina on Instagram, you're you're quite active on Instagram and like promoting other people, like other people's resources um, on Mom Rage or uh, other things about motherhood. Um, yeah, and pre-order the book, and I will pre-order the book. Uh, I'm excited about it. I've told so many people about Mom Lists over the years. Um, and people have been nice. like incredibly inspired by it. And so, yeah, even if you've oh, never wow. heard from them, <laughs> they have. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for all the, all the work you do and putting yourself out there. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for this podcast. And good to see you, Amanda. Good to see also. you too. <laughs> all Yay. right. This podcast is a project of Goddard Alumni Association. It is produced, hosted, and edited by Sam Rubline and Amanda Fay Laxon. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or would like more information, please visit goddardalumni.com slash podcast. And please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. See you next time.